sisters and brothers in Christ, what a tremendous privilege it is, let us not forget, to be able to praise God together, to gather together like this, and to pause in our lives, to pay attention to the Word of God and hear His instructions for our lives. Uh, a couple of comments before we get into the Scripture reading for today and then the message after that. The first is that <clears throat> I'd just like to celebrate with you in your presence some leadership that we have in this body and uh, in particular reference to Remembrance Day this past 11th. Uh, Grace Muller organized a Remembrance Day service um, in Murrayville, and I understand, I wasn't there myself, but I understand it was a beautiful and meaningful service for those who were there. And also, um, if you haven't seen it yet, Charlie Farkason, who is in grade 11, uh, did a rap project about Remembrance Day, and he was profiled on CTV this past week. And so if, it, if you have a chance to uh, have a watch of that, I, I found it quite inspiring and really wonderful to see one of our own congregants standing up like that and uh, profiled on CTV. So that was good. And then the second comment I'd like to make this morning is that uh, about last week's sermon. If you were here, you'll know that I preached a sermon on mirth. Uh, derived from Jesus' action in John 2, verses 1 through 11, where he turns water into wine. And I spent a good deal of time, and for some of you, too good deal of a time, emphasizing that in Scripture, wine is a symbol of joy or a symbol of mirth, and therefore we, the church, are to come with mirth as well. And I opened myself to misunderstanding. Um, some felt that I was promoting the drinking of alcohol, uh, by this message, and I understand how they could see that. I definitely emphasized the joy of wine in Scripture. Without sufficiently mentioning its dangers, I, I did mention the dangers, but I was not sufficiently clear on that for some of you. So let me make it abundantly clear. Although wine is a symbol of joy and mirth in Scripture, drinking too much wine is a huge problem according to Scripture as well. Drunkenness is a huge problem problem. Somebody this past week suggested to me they believe that people in this congregation, maybe because of COVID-19, maybe pre-existing going into this, but are drinking too much wine. We may need to reflect on that a little bit. A word may be in order to speak to one another. If we're getting into our cars after drinking too much wine, we may especially want to look at that. So let me be abundantly clear this morning. Wine is a symbol of joy in Scripture. It's received as a gift of God. At the same time, we ought to be incredibly careful in the way we use God's gifts, as all God's gifts can be misused, like the gift of speech, for example, which can transmogrify into gossip and slander. Okay, that's going into a different message, but you get my drift. So let's look today at John 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 24. What, what are we going to look at? John 2, 12, 13. Actually, I'm going to start at 13 through 25. No, I'm going to just go to 22. Yep. Beloved, lift up your ears and listen to God's word. Jesus' second public action in the fourth gospel. 
When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. My platform text last week was Jesus' words to the disciples after his resurrection, where he says centrally, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. In other words, Jesus is telling the disciples, in no uncertain terms, that the way he engaged in ministry is the way that his disciples ought also to engage in ministry. Jesus' ministry, in other words, is paradigmatic. It is a model, or it is to be a pattern for how we, the church, are to do ministry. As the Father sent him into the world, so too are we to be sent into the world. And what I suggested last week is not only does this mean in a most foundational way that we are to be concerned with bodies as the embodied people of God because Jesus came in the flesh. That is the foundation for everything else. But as we get into Jesus' public ministry, this means, first of all, that we are to go out with mirth. The people of God are to be a joyful people in this world. To bring a foretaste of the joy of the gospel and supremely to bring the wine, the joy of the gospel itself. But then we come to the text before us today. And if we're to bring mirth and to be sent by God in mirth, as Jesus was sent by God in mirth, then we are also to be sent with judgment. With the judgments of God. And chances are, I'm guessing, we may not like this very much. The cardinal rule of our society today is to be tolerant, by which we mean don't judge anyone, don't pass judgment on anyone. One of the worst possible things that can describe you as a Christian is that you are judgmental. And there's good reason for that. And we'll need to make some distinctions in this message, I think, between being judgmental, on the one hand, and bringing judgments and or making judgments on the other hand and we will make some of those distinctions but for now let us simply be clear about the fact that as we see in our text as clear as day when jesus comes into public ministry as one sent by the father he not only comes with mirth to bring stabs of joy into a world that's run out of joy he has also come to bring judgment Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? 
he says to those who are in the temple complex, well, making a whip out of cords and driving them out, or maybe a better interpretation would be casting them out of that same temple complex. The Greek word there for you Greek scholars is ekbalo. It's only used six times in the fourth gospel. That is very rare compared to, say, the synoptic gospels. The chief use of that word in the synoptic gospels is to describe what Jesus does when he drives out or casts out an evil spirit or an unclean spirit from a person. There's an intimation here in the fourth gospel that what Jesus is doing when he goes into the temple is he is casting out an unclean spirit. It's as though a foreign spiritual presence that is not of God has possessed the whole institution of the temple, and so Jesus is engaged in a house-clearing job. But make no mistake about it, it is a judgment. And the fact that Jesus brings judgment, beloved of God, I must tell you, is not simply a peripheral theme in the fourth gospel, it is a bona fide theme in the fourth gospel. There's no way around it, as much as it might initially feel disagreeable to us. Jesus' self-professed purpose, in fact, stated in the fourth gospel, one of his reasons for coming to this world is to bring judgment. As we read, as we journey through the gospel, let me just give you a handful of text. Chapter 522. The Father judges no one, and Jesus is referring to his heavenly Father, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Chapter 527. The Father has given me authority to judge because I am the Son of Man. Chapter 826. I have much to say in judgment of you. Chapter 939. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who say they can see will become blind. Chapter 1231. Now is the time for the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world, he's referring to the devil, will be driven out. It's not just judgment on humans, but on the spiritual forces themselves. And then in chapter 19, 13, in a beautiful poetic moment, actually, in the fourth gospel, as Pilate is leading Jesus out to be condemned and then crucified, the text says this, in a wonderful moment of intentional ambiguity in the fourth gospel, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judgment seat. <laughs> Who sat down on the judgment seat? The antecedent isn't clear. Is it Pilate or is it Jesus? We're invited here into the Christian art of the double take, and John wants us to know that it's Jesus, of course, who's on the judgment seat. He is the Son, the Danielic Son of Man. He is the one who has come to judge the world. I have come to judge the world. So, however much we may not like it, it's unavoidable. Jesus, when sent by the Father, comes not only to bring mirth, but to bring judgment. And he does so immediately at the outset of his ministry. First there's a wedding, then there's a funeral. First it's the wine of the gospel, then it's the vinegar of God's wrath. And we too, therefore, people of God, are to go out with the joy of God as well as with judgment. We are sent to inhabit in ourselves, if you will, two apparently contradictory modes of being. Apparently 
contradictory modes of being. Of joy and judgment. Of mirth and of madness. Now, it is really crucially important that we clarify this concept of judgment in our own minds and how we are to come with a judgment after the fashion of Jesus. This theme of judgment in the fourth gospel is actually really quite complex and nuanced. And so let's make sure we're getting a refined picture of it. Because the last thing we need is, I'm sure some of you would like to tell me after this message, and probably will, the last thing we need is a bunch of judgy, judgmental, self-righteous, crusading, and puritanical Christians who do more damage than good and heap more shame than the grace of the gospel than we ought to. And so we need to be careful with a theme like this. But we do need to be faithful Christians at the same time. So I think there are four things that we can and must say from the Gospel of John and Scripture at large as we consider this theme of judgment and just how we are to bring it out to the world. Okay? So first, it's important for us to notice that Jesus' ability to judge the world is in his humanity as a human being, it is derivative. It's derivative, which is to say he has authority to judge and does judge, and sometimes harshly as we see with the temple incident, but only because he hears the Father's voice, knows the Father's word, and then communicates this word of truth to the world. His judgments, in other words, are always based, as we may put it for ourselves, on the word of God, on scripture. He does not fabricate in his own humanity according to his own perceptions. He doesn't fabricate his own standards by which to judge people according to his own preferences or tastes or inclinations. But he makes wise judgments based on a consistent, immutable standard. That of the voice and word of God which establishes God's intentions for creation, his desires for human beings, and his will for institutions like the temple. And I'll show this from a few texts in a moment. But first, let me just add a wrinkle. It is for this reason that Jesus' authority to judge, it's for the reason, this reason, that Jesus' authority to judge is derivative. It comes from the Father above. It's for that reason that when it does come to this theme of judgment in the fourth gospel, this is really amazing. Jesus appears to flat out contradict himself invite you to read through the Gospel of John this week, and you will see this in stark terms. Sometimes, as we just read, Jesus says that it is for this reason that I've come into the world, to judge the world so that those who are blind will see and those who say they can see will become blind. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. But then Jesus pivots, and out of the same mouth, he says that he has not come to judge the world, but to save the world. All judgment belongs to the Father. Let me read you some text. It's striking. John 8, 15 through 16. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. John 8, 50. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. John 12, 47. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. So, 
who can unriddle this riddle? What's going on? Do you judge Jesus or don't you judge? Or are you contradicting yourself and giving us reason to believe that the Scriptures aren't authoritative? What is going on? Well, what's going on, friends, is what I've already said. Jesus does judge, but he judges in a derivative sense. He does so as a messenger. Or, if you prefer, and I hope you do prefer, to put it more biblically, he does so as a prophet. A prophet. A prophet renders judgments on the world. Real judgments. Out loud, uncomfortable judgments on people, ideas, behaviors, institutions. But the prophet, as we see all the way through the Old Testament, and I should say the true prophet because false ones do exist, but the true prophet makes and speaks judgment as one who speaks not on his own accord, but who speaks as the mouthpiece of God. The mouthpiece of God's standards, God's will, God's desires, God's anger, and yes, 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 God's judgments about things. Jesus doesn't judge, in a sense, in the fourth gospel because his judgments are really the judgments of God. They're derivative. It's not a contradiction. It's a paradox. And it is the paradox of the prophetic vocation. We are not to judge the world, and at the same time, because we have God's standards, we are to judge the world. But it's ultimately God doing it, not us. Because God puts his words, as it were, in our mouth. He has revealed himself, his will, to this world. Then the Lord reached out and touched my mouth, says Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 1.9. And he said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. See, therefore, today I appoint you. I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Ezekiel in chapter 2 of the book named after him says, The Lord said to me, Stand up on your feet, Ezekiel, and I will speak to you. I am sending you to the Israelites. Do not be afraid of what they say or be terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen. And then you may remember that the Lord gives him a scroll with his word on it, and Ezekiel is to eat this scroll to make it abundantly clear that the words that Ezekiel is going to speak of uh, oracles of doom and oracles of hope, oracles of judgment and oracles of God's salvation are coming from God and not Ezekiel himself. His authority is derivative. And it's exactly in the same manner, friends, that Jesus in John's gospel acts and renders judgments. As is made clear in John 5.30, for example, when Jesus says, By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. In other words, Jesus' judgments are just because at the end of the day, his judgments are the judgments of God himself. They don't represent his own free-flowing thoughts about the world. They are derived from the teachings of God, his Father. And I think this is really critically important for us to be clear about because it puts limitations, it puts offense on the way that we can, as those called and authorized by God to render judgments in this world, if we are to judge at all or make judgments about things or people or behaviors or institutions in this world, then these judgments must be backed by, supported, 
and springing from the clear teaching of the Word of God as found in Scripture and Scripture alone. The Christian has no authority, in other words, to pontificate and make sanctimonious judgments about things that God's Word are not clear about. However, let me add, where God's Word is clear, there will be times when we must speak. We must speak a word of truth in a world that is enslaved by lies. Remember what Martin Luther King Jr. once said, that there will be times in this life when our silence will make us guilty because there will be times when for the just purposes of God we must stand up and speak for the good of people and the good of his world. And so let me ask you, when you see rot in our culture or churches, beloved of God, like Jesus saw rot at the root of the temple complex, or you see people or things succumbing to damaging lies, are you prepared to speak? Do you have the courage to be faithful to Jesus in our day? Or will silence indict you? Now here's the second point of clarification. Notice what God says to Jeremiah when he sends him into the world to render judgment. The purpose of God's judgments is not, I will emphasize here, it is not merely to tear down or condemn from on high, but it is to tear down what is corrupt and broken and perverse for the purpose of raising up something new, something good, something that will lead to flourishing for all God's people in God's good world. It's kind of like out with the rot, in with the new shoots. I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, and, God adds, to build and to plant. In the same way as Jesus condemns the temple and symbolically tears it down, renders it obsolete, he does so in order to plant something new. Namely, a new locus of God's presence in the world, first in Jesus' own body, and then in his body, the church, later on, as we see this emphasized in John chapter 20. The problem with the temple, people of God, is that it has become corrupt, rotten to the core, contrary to God's purposes, and therefore an oppressive and dehumanizing institution, which is what always happens when things go contrary to God's purposes. That's why Jesus judges it. He judges it as a function of his love. And let me underscore here for a moment that judgment in Scripture is always a function of God's love. And I think we can all see this with some issues better than others, depending on the cultural waters we happen to be swimming in and typically depending on the general social consensus of our surrounding cultures. Like, for example... We all believe that child abusers and extortionists and murderers should be judged, stopped, told that what they're doing is wrong, dead wrong. We all believe that powerful people who take no concern for the poor and the weak and the vulnerable, but deliberately exploit them to make them more powerful, that they should be judged. We all agree that child trafficking and sex trafficking organizations should have today their tables flipped and organizations shut down as soon as possible. All of these sorts of judgments, we understand, are a function 
of true love. Not to say something, not to do something, is not a function of love. Other issues are more difficult for us than this, and we could spend some time pondering that, and I invite you to do that. But the point that I am making at this moment is that Jesus judges the rot in society as a function of his love. And part of the proof that his action is love lies in the fact that Jesus doesn't just judge it. He judges it, yes, but he does so in order to clear the ground for something new and truly life-giving for the good of the world to pop up, to pave the way for renewed human and creational flourishing. And so I ask again, where might we in the church today or as individual Christians bring renewal and healing to our world by rendering a word of judgment, a word of truth that accords with the word of God? It may be big, big things, but it may also be small. We're called to do this perhaps on the large level, but then on the local level when it comes to our relationship with others. Part of what it means to hold each other accountable in the church. We, we make judgments about good, healthy behavior and behavior that's going to harm and hurt us. And the loving thing to do is say, hey, where are you? Are you sure this is good for you? Come back. Come closer. Come back to the fire again. And perhaps... I may just add a footnote here about conversations of these sorts on the small level, but then also on the large level, um, about the way we engage with this topic of judgment. I am trying to be very sensitive here because uh, I recognize that this is a tricky subject for us. So let me just say this. There is a difference, beloved of God, in the way that Jesus brings judgment into this world and the way that we will bring judgment into this world. And the reason for that is pretty simple. It's because while Jesus is perfect, most of us haven't really reached that level of perfection yet. That was sarcasm. None of us have. Where Jesus does not wear blinders, uh, we have multiple and many blinders. And so what this means is that we need to be and approach people with a you chastened humility whenever we are preparing to make judgments about what they're doing, their behaviors, or other things that might be going on in our world. We must come deeply humble. This is not to say that we never do it. I don't believe that at all. But it does mean that if we are to do it, we do so with a great sense of our own brokenness and our own fallenness. And we do so with a great sense of humility. Let me put this negatively and a bit more forcefully than I just did because I really want to be understood at this point of the message. Although we Christians are to judge and make judgments as part of our prophetic vocation on this earth in, in, good, in good ways for the love of the world, our declarations about certain corrupt things or people or behaviors must never come from a place of self-righteousness or moral superiority or grandiosity about our own excellence, neither must our judgments about things be rendered with a finger-wagging, nose-thumbing, supercilious posturing. In short, we must never allow ourselves in the church to become a bunch of snobbish, snobbish self-inflated, fault-finding, joyless, legalistic, puritanical blowhards. Is that clear enough? Never. In that, says, in that sense, Jesus says in Matthew 7, Judge not, lest you be judged. 
For the measure you use will be used on you. In other words, if we are harsh and graceless, we can expect the same to be returned on us. That is not a text that can be used to say, oh, we're never to make judgments about things or judge behaviors. It's rather saying, watch out the way you go about that because the measure you use, ah, that's going to boomerang back on you and so shall it. And so we must be judicious and sometimes firm, yet almost always ever soft and humble. Or to put it in terms of Jesus' story, we are to announce words of grave judgment when the time comes and the signs are clear, while yet weeping over Jerusalem. Let me just say two more things and far more briefly about this topic of judgment, a third and a fourth point. Third, it is certainly true that Jesus came with words of judgment, but there is good reason to believe that the lion's share of how he brought judgment into the world was actually far more passive, even if far more explosive. Because Jesus brought an implicit form of judgment in and through his presence. The fourth gospel also makes this clear. His presence as the Son of God. His presence as the light of the world, which is to say a truly functioning, glorious human being, or as our text will say here, as the true temple of God, one in whom God's glory and radiance, God's holiness, his otherness, shines forth in all of its radiance. And to be this presence on earth, friends, the fourth gospel states and demonstrates, produced an unspoken word of judgment on the world, an indictment to the people around Jesus. This is perhaps stated most clearly by Jesus himself in John 3, 19 and 20. Quote, this is the verdict. This is the judgment. Light has come into this world. Jesus is the glory of God. But people love darkness instead of light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that his very presence on earth as a luminous man who does God's will, as a truly holy person, is for so many in the world the uncomfortable, if unspoken, presence of judgment. And no wonder it is. Because to step into the light, to step near the light, is to have one's own darkness exposed or lack of light. We may think we're radiant until we stand next to Jesus. We may think we're an icon of human potential until we see just how much Jesus did with his own life. Try shining a three millimeter flashlight into a five million watt flood lamp and see how you feel about your pin prick pen light. And we can understand this sort of implicit judgment merely by another's presence, can't we? I mean, let me just give you a mundane, but I think a wonderful example of this. This past summer, some of you may have watched the Olympics, there was a 14-year-old girl. Did any of you see this? A 14-year-old girl who was a swimmer and who began to win, I think it was multiple uh, medals in the swimming competition. Did any of you see this? Okay, good. Okay, great. We're still waiting. Awesome. So I mentioned to my nephew, who's 14 years old as well, and his friend, Dylan, I said to them, man, what do you guys think about that? 14 years old. And she's 
at the Olympics, and more than just being at the Olympics, and being in a very difficult sport to be at the Olympic sport swimming, she's winning medals. Unbelievable. How do you guys feel about that? And Dylan, I think really revealingly said, it makes me feel like I haven't done anything in my life yet. I feel like a complete loser. Like here she is my age and she's at the Olympics as a, as a swimmer winning medals. And what have I done with my life? And this could be true in a moral sense as well. I mean, whom of us wants to stand next to Mother Teresa and have our good deeds in life stacked up against Mother Teresa's? I don't particularly want to stand there and be compared to Mother Teresa because you're going to see how far I fall short. I had this acute feeling actually this past on my sabbatical when I read the book The Hiding Place by Corey Tenboom. You read that book and you see how it makes you feel when you see these two sisters in the concentration camps loving their enemies in ways that are incredibly costly and planning a future where they are going to try, try to love the Germans back into a new way of being human. And you will feel how small. And I have my feeling reading the book is, oh Lord, I have so much further to go. James, the brother of Jesus, interestingly, in his letter to the church, talks about Cain and Abel. And he says, why was it that Cain killed Abel? It's because Cain saw Abel's righteous deeds and he knew then, in comparison to Abel, that his own deeds were evil. We don't want to stand too close to the light because it exposes our own darkness. It forms an implicit judgment on our own existence. That we fall short. That we are sinners. And part of our call into the world is to holiness so that we might be this light. And you'll say, well, that is awful. You're just going to make people feel horrendous. You're just going to bring shame on people. Well, that may be part of it. Unless it leads to repentance. One of my favorite scenes in the Gospel of Luke is when Jesus tells Peter and the other disciples who are fishing. He says, go hey, you guys. How's your fishing tonight? Oh, not great. Well, why don't you throw the nets on the other side? And so they do. But Peter's rolling his eyes the whole time. And then, as they're pulling all these multiple fish overside, what does Peter say? Do you remember? Away from me, Lord! I am a sinful man. Why did he feel that way? Because he came with pride. He came with an exalted view of himself. And then he encountered Jesus. And one of the things that encountering holiness like that can do is it can lead us to repentance. It can lead us and begin us down the path towards true transformation and becoming holy like Jesus Himself. I remember my professor Bruce Waltke telling us, friends, that most people come to faith because they encounter true holiness. I invite you to look at your own story and see and test whether this is not true. Somebody was in your life or came into your life or a multiplicity of people through time where you saw the face of God. And there was a double take, because on the one hand, you felt, oh my, I'm not yet there. But then the Holy Spirit enabled you to pray, and Lord, but make, bring me to that place. It's why holiness is so important in the New Testament. Paul, in the opening of his letter to Titus, says that he's been called and established as an apostle of Jesus Christ, quote, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Here Paul establishes that holiness is actually the goal of faith and knowledge. Becoming like Jesus. 
Peter, in the opening of his second letter, urges the people of God to, quote, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness. And then to godliness, mutual affection and love. Why? So that we can be saved? No, not at all. We're not saved by our holiness. So that we could join God in His mission to this world by becoming truly human people, His designs for us from the beginning, so that the world would see what a truly human community and people might look like and come back to the living God. Here's a fourth and final point. Zeal for your house will consume me. And we could be consumed for a long time expositing Psalm 69 from which that comes. The point I want to make here is that we ought not to be naive about this calling, our prophetic vacation in the world. The fact that we're called to speak judgment and live holy lives as an implicit judgment on the world, even though the sending of ours is a function of God's love, this calling is nails hard. And probably when it matters most, we're going to want to jettison our calling and throw in the towel. And you know why? It's because, friends, this prophetic calling of ours in the world is almost certainly going to mean suffering in some way or another, in greater and lesser ways. Jesus pulls no punches about this in his own life in terms of his prophetic speech. In John 7, 7, he says, the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And this hatred of the world, as we well know, leads inexorably, unavoidably, to Jesus' suffering and death on the cross. And the same will be true of us, our prophetic speech in the world and prophetic living, especially as the world moves further and further away from God's intentions, is going to be a source of profound annoyance. And so we better be ready to suffer for it. The good news is that Jesus' greatest moment of suffering, which also couples as his greatest moment of judgment, is his greatest moment of triumph on the cross. As I quoted at the beginning of the message, in John 12, Jesus says, Now is the time for the judgment of this world. And he's looking forward to his work on the cross. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. As Jesus is lifted up, or let me put it this way, as the truth in the flesh of a human being is lifted up, the lies of the one who's a liar and the murderer from the beginning are exposed for what they are, and therefore salvation is available to the world in the suffering of our Lord. And may it be true of us as well, if we are to suffer, let us suffer for the sake of the gospel and the revelation of God's truth in this world for the salvation of the world. It is to this that we have been called. May God give us strength in our day by His Spirit to be faithful to our calling as a church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.